Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. If you've got your Bible, I'd for you to open. We're going to be going through this pretty carefully here this morning. The first 11 chapters, up till um, the triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday, which is coming in a few weeks for us, but we've passed it because we're going through the book of Mark, and the first 10 chapters take place very rapid fire in a very over a three-year span of Jesus' life. And chapter 11 through 16 take place over the Passion Week, and we're slowing down now, and we have been for a couple of months, and we're going day by day, essentially, through these last days of Jesus' life. We're actually going to skip a day um, because the next, next week, uh, as we get in, we'll be actually uh, into his, his death and the, the trial, but here we are Wednesday-ish, Tuesday-ish uh, of the Passion Week, and what we read is that uh, now that Jesus has entered the temple, has described to them that the temple's no longer going to be there and functioning in the future, that something new is going to be occurring. He debates the Pharisees, and they try to trick and trap him, and he answers their questions. And then he predicts what's going to happen in these last days, both the days of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, plus what's going to happen at the end times. And now we have this uh, picture of his time with his disciples and a time with friends. Before that, at the very beginning of the chapter, we learn it was two days before the Passover, and then they write, Mark writes, the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the Gentiles who would have been reading this, since that's what they called the same feast. And this is a week-long celebration of the parting of the Red Sea and the Passover associated with their escape from Egypt. So we learn that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth or in some underhanded way and kill him. For they, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. 
So why? We've learned before the Pharisees derived their authority from the people, not from God. We learned that back when they were asking questions about John the Baptist, and they said, you know, that we can't answer this question because if we answer one way, the people are going to be upset because they thought John was a prophet. So we see that their, their authority did not derive from God's Word or from the Lord Himself, but from the people. And so they didn't want to get the people upset. They were politicians in a sense. They were checking how the wind was blowing. And so they said, let's wait until after the feast. So they were trying to sculpt the circumstances to fit their purposes. But what we learn is at the end, Judas comes and makes available this great way for them to uh, kill Jesus. He comes and offers to betray him. So they turn because it was going to be during the feast, right? That's when he's killed. They said, well, we can't pass up this opportunity. So although they said, let's not do it because it might upset the people, they figured this was an opportunity they couldn't pass up. I want to say this before we get into the story of the pouring on of the ointment or whatever, because the the Pharisees appear, and, and we, all, we always live in a day and an age where there are people who feel that they can manipulate circumstances to their own benefit. Whatever arena, institution, or whatever in this earth, that's, that's how we live, and it's no different then than it is now. Let me tell you what the Scripture teaches us. In Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching one of the very first sermons after Pentecost, and Peter says this, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Two chapters later, uh, Luke comments in Acts, he says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. But what they did was what your power and your will, O God, had decided beforehand should happen. Let me assure you in a world that sometimes seems to be spinning out of control that God sits above and beyond and directs things. And we talked last week about not giving in to things that would fuel our fear. We live in the knowledge, because of what Scripture teaches us, of a God who has prepared things. And that it was by His will and His knowledge and His directive what was going to happen to Jesus. And... I can tell you honestly that I am sure that the Pharisees and Judas acted according to their free will, that they did not feel at all manipulated by God to do what they did, but that God works in a way we can hardly begin to comprehend to work through the free choices of man to achieve his sovereign will. And I take great comfort in that. And so should all of us, because when we live with a God who knows as opposed to a God who doesn't know and who is at our disposal and our whim, that to me is scary. If God was at my whim and disposal. So I take comfort in that, knowing uh, that as, as Jesus is going to inexorably march toward his death, that this was always in the will of the Father. Your life, as you submit it to God's will, you can be so confident that you are in his hand. So let's look at what happens here. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. We know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived there. We also learn uh, that a man named Simon the leper lived there. And this story of Jesus being anointed by this oil and alabaster flask is told in three of the Gospels. There's a very similar story in Luke, but it's a different story. 
Have being anointed by oil would have been a common practice for travelers or for special guests at a banquet. That was just a way. Sometimes you have a special seat for a special guest in our culture. That might be something that was done. There were customs. There's customs now. There were customs then. And one of the customs would have been to have oil anointing. So it wouldn't be surprising to find two stories like this. The story in Luke is a different story. It's a different setting, different house that they're in, different person that anoint. There are similarities in the story. Uh, it's a woman who anoints him, and there's some things that are similar. But this story is told in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. And we learn a few different things, but they're essentially the, the details of those stories are exactly the same. Luke's story differs a great deal. And so so we, we almost surely it's a different story, though some of the details are, are similar. Um, so what we learn in this story, and I'm going to add a few details that we don't know from Mark, but we do know from John and Matthew, is that uh, he was invited to dinner at this home of Simon the leper, and he was reclining, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. It was very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. We learn in John's Gospel that this was Mary, who was the sister of Martha, brother of a sister of Lazarus, and that this was the same Mary and Martha duo that where Martha was busy preparing meals, and she says, you know, why isn't my sister helping me? And Mary is uh, sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus sort of protects Mary and says, Martha, you're very busy with a lot of things, but Mary has chosen the good part here to just sit while you're working. This is the same person. Uh, Mary that pours this oil over his head. So they were at Simon's home. It's very possible because uh, if Simon had had some skin disease, he wouldn't have been serving. So it could have been that Mary and Martha were serving on his behalf. There's a lot of things that could have happened there. But what we know is that this was really, really expensive. So the, the bean counters among the um, disciples count up that it's 300 denarii which if, if a denarii is a laborer's day wages and it's 300, that's basically a year's salary. If you, I don't know if they did weekends or not, but 300 days plus, more than 300 days of a, a days for a, a worker. And so it's a lot of money. We don't know what she had set that aside for. We don't know if it was for Lazarus. By this point, he'd been resurrected. You know, he'd been out of the tomb. We don't know. But we know that it was... Uh, a lot. It was very, very expensive. And we know that the disciples, it says, scolded her. L- looking at verse 5, it says, well, verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. It's interesting to me that Mary is scolded earlier for wasting time when she could have been serving, and she was just sitting at Jesus' feet doing nothing, right? She was wasting time. And Jesus looks and says, no, she's chosen something better by sitting at my feet. And now she's scolded for wasting money because, look, I mean, she didn't have to pour out the whole jar, right? You, You can anoint with less, it's customary to pour oil on. That's how anointings would have happened of kings. David, when he was anointed, it says there's, there's just oil running down the head. Psalms talks about running down the beard even. 
that that would be something, an anointing that would have happened at a special ceremony. But for a dinner, when you would have honored that, you would have necessarily poured it over. The custom would have been to just anoint them and wipe it off and wipe their feet. We've seen that custom as Jesus took the servant role for the custom of wiping the feet. But she broke this flask, and it says she poured the whole thing over. And they were counting 300 denarii. Maybe in our custom, I don't know how much, you know, if you took some perfume or something, I you know since these perfumes can be outrageous, and you just, you know, usually you just use a little spray because it just, you know, the whole scent of the house. And what if you just ripped off that $500 bottle and you just... You think, oh, hold on. It's too much. Mary, you're wasting time. You're wasting resources. Think of what could be done. She is not an economist, is she? She has scarce resources. I'm an economics major. I know about scarce resources. I'm sort of with the disciples on this. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the followers. Yeah, I, I can understand. You did more than you had to do. Think of what could be done. Another time they come up with money. They're very good, some of the disciples, at money. They're going to feed people. And there's all these people, and they count up and say, with all these people, we're going to need at least 200 denarii to feed them. Right? We've got thousands of people on the hillside. We've, we've done our calculations. We've got to have all this money. And Jesus says, no, just bring me what you got. Right? They bring some loaves, and they bring some fish, and they say, just give it all to me. Everybody's fed. Now the disciples say, this is 300 denarii. We could have fed the people that day plus 50% more. What we learned from John is that this was not quite what it all seemed, that Judas was actually stealing from the purse and that part of his motivation was actually that, you know, he saw all this money that he was dipping, he was embezzling. So there was some mixed motive there. But it doesn't make it any less true that they could have done something different with that. I want to point out to you something that it's, it's hard in English to, to translate this, but when you look at the language that this was written in, uh, in the Greek, there's a phrase that it's used and, and it's translated here. Um, verse 8, it says, as Jesus protects Mary and says, just wait, and we're going to deal with this. You'll always have the poor with you in a minute. But in, in verse 8, he says, she has done what she could. The word ho eshen espoisen is these three words that are used. And, and it literally means what she had, she did. She dumped everything she had that she did. It's only used one other time, and it's just been used in what Brian spoke about two weeks ago, when the woman puts in two copper coins into the kettle of in the temple, and she's criticized for kind of too little. They're, they've put in a lot, the, the rich people put in a lot, and she puts in a little. And the exact same phrasing is used. It says it's, it's one word's changed, but it's ho eshen kabalo which means what she had, she threw. 
She threw in, she placed in there everything she had, and he commends her for that. Two women hold back nothing. One has a little, one has a lot. They're both criticized. But the point Jesus makes is what they had, they gave. Hold on to that for just a minute. I'm going to ask you a question. How much devotion to Jesus becomes craziness? I was a youth pastor for eight years, and I had a distraught mom come to me one day because she was so thrilled that her daughter had gotten involved with our youth program and was really thriving and had sort of come alive uh, now in early high school and had really committed her life to Christ and was beginning to turn from some things that her mom was concerned about to really attending every Sunday and beginning to see life beyond just where she was. And, and she comes to her mom and say, I think I want to not pursue uh this sort of career in line that you want, and maybe I'd like to do missions. And her mom came to me distraught, and she said, okay, hold on. I'm really glad she's coming to youth group. She's much better at home. Things are so much better, but let's not go crazy, right? Like, this girl has potential. I mean, she'd go to college. She'd get a scholarship. She's a really good athlete. And, you know... I mean, missionaries are fine and everything. I just said it. I said, so hold on. Wait just a sec. So, so what you're saying is, little too much devotion to Jesus? I'm not saying she should be a missionary or not. Where is the line? Where is it that Jesus wants just a little too much? Okay, Jesus said, I'm glad for you to have this, but don't touch my kids. Jesus, I'm glad for you to have this, Part of my, but if you call me not to get married, oh, hold on. Lord, you're calling me to stay in a situation when I'm unhappy? Lord, I mean, you're asking how much devotion, how much of your flask have you got? Because you could just put it on a little bit. Or do you say, you know what? All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Disciples, for whatever reason, truly are right. It could have been used for the poor. And Jesus makes a statement, which sometimes I think is famously misinterpreted. Poor you'll always have with you. Which seems like a dismissal of the need. Let's go back to the Scripture that Jesus is quoting. He's not making this up. This is right from Scripture. If you've got your Bible, I'd like you to open to Deuteronomy 15. Hopefully this will dismiss any idea that Jesus is somehow dismissing the poor, the same Jesus who said, whatever you do for the least of these, you're doing for me. Jesus doesn't contradict himself. This is talking about the sabbatical year. I'll refrain from talking about my upcoming sabbatical, which I'm looking forward to, but one of these days. At the end of every seven years, I'm beginning at Deuteronomy 15.1, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release, every creditor shall release what he's lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it. Whatever is yours with your brother you shall release. Verse 4, There will be no poor among you, because the Lord will bless you in the land 
that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. If you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord and be careful, everything I command you today. Hear what it says? Because they obey God's principles in the sabbatical release, there won't be poor among you because the Lord's blessing will be on you. For the Lord will God will bless you, verse 6, as he promised you. You will even lend to many nations and shall not borrow. Verse 7, if any, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land, the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. So he's saying some people get themselves into poverty situations, sometimes of their own making, sometimes not. Circumstances do hit people. That's possible. You shall open your hand. God's directive is to be generous. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near, so you're not going to lend because you know you're not going to have to pay back. He says, don't do that. You're short-sighted. You shall give freely, verse 10. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because of this, the Lord will bless you in all your work. And then verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in your land. See what Jesus is quoting here? He says, the poor will always be among you. It's an exact quote that Jesus makes. He's acknowledging that poverty is cyclical. It comes and it goes and whatever. But that in this situation, this woman's gift, she was pouring on Jesus and that he could do more with her gift than they could ever imagine because she was all that she had, she gave. Sometimes things are more valuable when they're poured out before the Lord Jesus. And for us, sometimes we can weigh, well, if, I'm, if I'll do this for humanity, then I can step into this saving role. If I can give my energy and time, if I can do this, which is all good stuff, unless we haven't poured it all out before Jesus Christ. When you pour your life before Him, then what you do matters for eternity. If you do not, the Scripture is clear that if we don't do what we do in the name of the Lord with our hearts poured out before Him, then it only lasts for this life. And you may do some good, but it won't be the same good as putting it in the hands of a Savior who can multiply Ultimately, this was an anointing, the only anointing Jesus would ever get for his burial that Mark records. And it was done, I don't know that this woman, Mary, understood what she was doing, but Jesus did. And he says, what this woman is doing is honoring me by preparing me for burial because Jesus' blood served him well to keep him alive, but it serves us better when it was poured out from him because it is the salvation of everyone who believes. The blood of Jesus Christ, His life given for us, means that we have access to God the Father. Poured out things can be much more valuable than things kept. I don't know what God's asking you to pour out. I know this woman, in generously giving, maybe not even understanding, says that her act would be known throughout history. Here we are talking about it generations later, even though Mark doesn't even record her name. We still remember what she's done. 
It's not that her generosity was the gospel. It was that it points us to the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that would follow that is the gospel. And this woman, in an act of worship, prepares Jesus' body and anoints Him. Interestingly enough, she steps into the role of what a priest would have done in the Old Testament and anoints this man to be king, prophet, priest. It's amazing. Jesus understood the significance. Not sure anyone else really did. But this is going to prepare him. It is our devotion and our love and our worship that's flown, comes back because he first laid down his life for us. We don't begin our worship until we understand that he poured out his life for us and then we can pour our oil out for him. Will you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the truth that lies within your word and that every picture and every story becomes a portrait pointing us to the one true picture that's going to matter beyond this life, that of the God who came to be fully man so He could pour out His life for us who need it. Lord, we stand in total and desperate need of salvation. Lord, that is only available to those who recognize and call upon the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ and confess their need of Him and His saving grace. Lord, for those of us who who haven't yet been there, I ask that You would draw us to the point of being able to confess that we believe. Even if every question isn't answered, that we believe that we need a Savior and that a Savior has come and has made the way available. It's as easy as saying, I believe. And then once we believe, we get to continually pour out everything He has given to us, every bit of oil, and we get to pour it all out to Jesus and watch Him multiply it. Speak to us, Lord. I'm just going to leave a few moments of silence for the Holy Spirit if He would want to quicken anything to your heart from His Word today or just what He's calling us to respond to the devotion He's shown to us as we continually pour out ourselves before Him.